In the movie Groundhog Day, TV weatherman Phil Collins, adeptly played, by the way, by Bill Murray in one of his best role ever, Phil finds himself stuck repeating in a repeating loop that goes on and on, and he repeats the same day over and over again. So when he goes to bed, he wakes up the previous morning of the day he just lived, over and over and over. At first, Phil thinks, this is awesome, and so he eats badly. Don't, I mean, he stuffs himself silly. Why? It doesn't matter. I'm just going to repeat the same day over and over again. He starts doing some things that are naughty. (laughs) And after however many days of this, he grows bored and tired. And he becomes cynical and he says to himself, you know, it just doesn't even matter. So Phil starts taking his own life. He starts committing suicide in a number of different spectacular ways. But when he... You know, his eyes close, he thinks that's it, and then boom, he wakes up, and guess what? It's the morning of the the previous day, the day he just lived. But as the movie progresses, Phil starts changing. He starts, you know, he notices people that were in accidents or kids falling out of trees in the newspaper, and he places himself so that he can help people avoid tragedy. He starts helping people. He starts loving people. By the end of the movie, Phil is a generous man. Phil's a changed man. There are a growing number of people in America who believe this describes life, that life is this cycle, and you just keep coming back till you get it right. Reincarnation is part of this. Uh, You'll hear people talk about karma coming around. You just got to keep going at it till you figure it out and get it right. I want to remind you that those of us who follow Jesus, we believe that life plays out differently. We believe life is not an endless cycle. Um, Life is actually going somewhere. It's headed in a direction. Your life, my life, human history has a destination. Uh, It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it's headed somewhere. We happen to believe that Jesus Christ is coming back to make things right and to make all things new. We believe that Jesus is returning like we talked about two weeks ago as king, but we also believe that Jesus is returning as judge. Okay, there I said it, judge. Isn't that an interesting word, judge? We love that word in America, don't we? Don't judge me. Don't judge. Are you judging? Quit judging. Why don't you have to judge me? Why don't, can't you just accept me? Quit judging. We associate the word judge in America and in the West primarily and almost exclusively with condemnation. So really what we mean when we use the word judge is don't condemn me. Don't condemn me for what I wear. Don't condemn me because I've got a tattoo. Don't condemn me because I slept in and didn't come to church today. Don't condemn me because of the decisions and choices that I make. That's what we mean, we Americans, when we say don't judge. It's interesting. Judge has a negative connotation and judgment has a negative connotation in our culture. And we're judged all the time, aren't we? We're judged on our appearance. We're judged based on where we vacation. Just post pictures of your vacation on Facebook. 
It'll either be a 10 or a negative 10. <laughs> and then you'll be looking at your friends that went to Aruba and Club Med and going, Honey, health come we can't go from here. Let me talk to the budget. Dave said no. Okay? <laughs> I hate Dave. <laughs> okay? <laughs> by the way, by the way, when non-Christians, when non-churchgoers are asked to use adjectives to describe evangelical Christians in America, the top two adjectives given to evangelical Christians are they're anti-gay and they're judgmental. Those evangelical Christians are just condemning people all the time. It's what they do. It's who they are. They're condemners. Instead of Christians, why don't we just call them condemners and then we'll clear up the language. That's the way non-church people, non-Christians feel. That's the adjectives that they use. So harsh, petty condemnation is what gets associated with judgment. Can we agree that's kind of how our culture links it and, and plays it out? Interestingly, harsh, petty condemnation is not what the Bible teaches when it talks about judgment, and especially judgment of the Lord. It's entirely different. If we can put the Psalm 19.9, there's a phrase in the Old Testament, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous. For those of you that are history buffs, you'll know immediately, oh, that's the quote that Abraham Lincoln gave in the second inaugural address. That's right. That's right. It is. Only he would have said true and righteous because that's how they pronounced it back then. But Lincoln was making a point. The South thinks that God's on their side. The North thinks that God's on their side. God's on God's side. And God's judgments are true and right. We just don't always recognize it. And sometimes we mistakenly think God's on our side when he's not. He's on his side. John three seventeen is after the most famous verse that appears in every sporting event in America, right? Because there's some goofball with a big banner that says John 3.16, or a big glove, number one, that says John 3.16. You know what John 3.17 says? God sent his son into the world not to judge the world. Some translations say not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Interesting, isn't it? I want to suggest to you that much of what the Bible teaches about Judgment is actually better described by a different word, justice. Much of what the Bible has to say about judgment is actually better described by the word justice. Throughout the Old Testament, prophets are sent to warn about judgment. And what are the beefs that they have against Israel, against the kings, against the various administrations? You're oppressing the poor. You rich people have grabbed everything and you're not letting the poor get anything. And you're supposed to let the land go fallow. And you're not supposed to lock things up that way. You kings are supposed to shepherd your people. But instead you tax them to death and you take from them. And you're takers. And you're leaving them destitute. I have these beefs against you. Oh, and by the way, you're sacrificing your children to what, Baal? No. I'm supposed to be God. You're not putting me first. You're not loving your neighbor the way you should love your neighbor. You're not living life the way it's supposed to be lived. We see this play out in the teachings of Jesus, don't we? Jesus, interestingly, if you take Jesus' teachings and you go and you go into a room full of progressive liberals in the United States and you go through what Jesus teaches just in the Sermon on the Mount, 
Nine times out of ten, do you know what progressive liberals do? right? They stand up and clap. Jesus' teachings about justice are usually and almost universally like people go, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be right there, baby. It is. Look at who Jesus shows mercy to in the Bible. There's a woman caught in adultery. Hey, Jesus, we caught this woman in adultery. The guy got away, though. <laughs> but let's stone her, And right? And he, he says, whoa, back the truck up. He shows mercy to someone who broke God's law, and then she walks a different path. Her life is changed. Who does Jesus deal with harshly in his ministry? There's a guy who goes into the temple one day to pray, and he's like, Oh, Lord God, I thank thee that I am not like this miserable sinner. I thank thee that I'm not a woman or a Roman. Thank you, God, for how you've made me. What does Jesus say? These two guys prayed two prayers. The sinner comes in, and what does he say to God? Have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, who walks away forgiven? The humble person. Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. You see how things are starting to connect? I want to suggest to you that Almost everybody actually wants Jesus to return as judge, whether they realize it or not. I want to suggest to you this morning that almost everybody wants Jesus to return because they want justice. We see this play out when a mom appears in front of the cameras whose daughter has been kidnapped, brutally raped, and murdered. And with all the cameras rolling, what does she say? I want this man Found, I want him held accountable for what he did, and I want to make sure that this never happens to anyone else. I want justice for my daughter. It plays out when you see those kooky Wall Street people, right? They're protesting because they feel that the system is rigged and they want economic justice. You saw it play out this last year in America when people started rioting and and whatnot in Ferguson and then in Baltimore because they want racial justice. Are you picking up on this now? See, we want justice. We want it. We long for it because we know the world is broken, that people are being cruel to one another, and that it needs to stop. And so we long for justice. There's a movie, one of my favorite movies, and if you'll put this first picture up there. This is Warden Norton from the Shawshank Redemption. In the movie Shawshank, Warden Norton Norton will give a speech to new prisoners as they come in. And he says, one of the things that you'll get here at Shawshank is the Bible. And he holds it up. The thing is, Warden Norton is a hypocrite. Oh, they get the Bible, but they get a heaping amount of cruelty of the worst kind and abuse of the worst kind. And the icing on the cake is that the warden is actually embezzling money from the state and stealing it away. Without spoiling the end of the movie, he's caught. And there's a scene where 
he opens the morning newspaper and the headline is Corruption and Murder at Shawshank. And at that exact moment, he can hear sirens of state police cars entering the prison compound. And he looks up and he sees on his wall this cross stitch that presumably his wife made. Only now it has new meaning. His judgment cometh, and that right soon. And if you're watching the movie at that point, you know what you're thinking? Yes! Yes! That God deserves it! Yes! Okay, you're cheering on the inside. Why? Because you want justice. Okay? If you brought a Bible, I want you to open it to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to be in one of the three more famous passages about judgment and justice. (laughs) Scholars and Bible theologians, of which I am not one, will say, well, there may be two judgments or three judgments. Um, And they'll point to Matthew 25 that involves everybody with sheep and goats. They'll point to Revelation 20 that talks about a great white throne, which is for unbelievers. They'll talk about Romans 14 and the judgment seat of Christ, which talks about believers. I'm a simple guy. Three, sometimes I can't count that high. So I'm today going to attempt to boil down to what are some, what's the big most important thing to know about judgment. And so we're going to wade into that by looking at Matthew chapter 25. And so here we go. Matthew 25, and we're starting in verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is Jesus speaking, and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats on his left. We know from Jesus' teaching and from the New Testament that Jesus is the good shepherd and that Jesus' sheep know his voice. And we know that Jesus knows the difference between sheep and goats. He can tell. No one's going to fool him. He knows who's a sheep and who's a goat. He knows. And that's part of what you're seeing in these few verses of what Jesus is explaining how this will play out. And he's talking about his return, and he's talking about judgment. Jesus is going to be a judge. He's going to administer justice on the last day. So let's keep going, and that's verses 34 and following. Then the king, that's Jesus, will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. Now let me pause for a moment. For all of us who've been redeemed by Jesus Christ, he's saying, come. He's saying, I've prepared a place for you. It's ready. Come into your inheritance. I've been waiting for this day. You're invited. You're expected. You're wanted. Let's keep going. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, uh, When did we ever see you hungry or feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink? Or a stranger and show you hospitality? Or naked and give you clothing? I mean, when did we ever see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, 
you were doing it for me. So there's a little bit of surprise here among the sheep. They're surprised that they did more than they thought they did. They're surprised that some of these seemingly small acts of love that they did for people, because that's just who you are, it's what you do. We're church, we're family, you know, it's the one another stuff. We love, we serve, we care, you know, it's, it's just right. And Jesus says, whoa, no, boom. And so there's surprise woven into these verses. And, uh, and he's very specific, the least of my brothers and sisters, Adelphone. Um, and he's talking about members of God's family. Um, so I think part of this surprise is uh, we overestimate the big stuff. And in this passage, so for example, big stuff is you're Billy Graham and you've taken the gospel to 55 nations. Booyah! That's not listed here, is it? Neither is starting five food pantries and feeding 10,000 people. The stuff that's listed here really falls into the category of small acts of love. Small acts of love. We underestimate the daily, day in, day out, living a life of love that is demonstrated in these small acts of service. So he goes on, and Jesus speaks to the other group, and that's, Verses 41 and following. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. And they'll reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? I mean, if it was you... And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Same reaction. They're surprised. At some level, they're surprised. What? You? Righteous? So one of the things that is consistent from this passage is... uh, Righteous deeds come from a righteous heart. Unrighteous deeds come from an unrighteous heart. Um, And this passage isn't saying salvation is based on what you do. We have a lot that Paul says throughout the rest of the New Testament and what Jesus himself has to say in the Gospels to know that salvation is not based on what you do, although it would look at just a first glance that maybe that's what this is saying, which it's not. Um, The surprise here, again, has to do with posture. Uh, Remember the two people who go in and pray in the temple? Oh, God. Uh, Remember uh, Warden Norton? At Shawshank, you'll get the Bible. He's confident, isn't he? But he is a hypocrite. (laughs) Okay? On the last day, hypocrites will be exposed for what they are. People who did stuff just for their own aggrandizement will be shown for what it is. On the last day, people who simply were humbly going about loving and serving will be shown to be doing amazing things, and they will be equally surprised. What? You mean that casserole? I mean, working with stinky teenagers? I'm sorry, what? What? 
that was you, Lord? So again, judgment is something that you and I have in our future, but it's not something to dread. If, if you've made the decision to make Jesus your Savior and your King, I want to remind you that today that judgment is not something for you to dread. Um, Romans 8, chapter 1 says this, now, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. So I want to take a moment and I want to speak to those of you who've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your King. Um, you have nothing to fear from final judgment. You have nothing to fear because on that day you're acquitted because the judgment is based on the works of another person. This is consistently taught in the Bible. Maybe you've heard of this. Jesus lived the life you and I should have lived. He died the death we deserve. And on that day, believers are acquitted because God looks at Jesus. And, 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 and to paraphrase that old evangelism explosion question, well, what would you do if you were to suddenly die and appear before the Lord? What would you say to him? It's really simple. All I'm going to say is, hey, see Jesus over there? Look at him, not me. Look at him, not me. I don't have anything to offer. Him. It's that simple and that hard. It's good, I think, to look ahead and anticipate judgment and judge justice because for those of us who have faith and confidence in Jesus, we know who he is. He's good. This isn't just some tyrant, right? This isn't some... Uh, person who's clueless about humanity. Hebrews tell us, tells us that Jesus is, we have a high priest who's able to sympathize. He knows our condition. He lived it. In a minute, we're going to celebrate communion. So the one who's going to judge all of human history is the one who laid down his life for you and me and everyone. We can trust his judgment to be good and just, right? On that day, on Judgment Day, on Justice Day, the wicked will be put in their place. The poor and the weak will be given their due. Systemic evil, we talk about economic oppression, gone. We talk about racial oppression, gone. We talk about individual acts of cruelty, gone. Justice will carry the day. Truth will carry the day. Love will win out. And it's something to look forward to. Judgment day is actually a good day, not a day of dread. In light of that, I, I want you and I to think a little bit about that. For those of you that have made Jesus your Savior and King, I have a little exercise. You can do it today. You can take it home with you. It's simply called plan your epitaph. Plan your epitaph. It's got some questions on it. Because here's the thing. If I can condense it down, you can either live for you. It's all about you, your happiness, what you want, what you need. Da, da, da. You can live for you or you can live for Jesus. You can live for eternity. And I want to appeal to you to stop living for you and start living for him. It's better, it's worth it, 
and its anticipation of that day. And there's some evaluative questions here. So you today have an opportunity. You can begin planning your epitaph, so to speak. So if you're not happy with some of the decisions and miles that you have in the rearview mirror, just start looking ahead. And in light of where you want to be someday with Jesus on that day, what are, the thing that was most important to me was, people say I stood for, I made a difference in the world by, God was glorified because, people knew I loved them because, the reason I expect to Jesus to say well done is, okay, small acts of love. See, this stuff, this plays out at the kitchen table, it plays out in the car, it plays out at the office, it plays out at school, it plays out in everyday small situations. That's where it plays out. And I want you to live a life of love. I want you to live a life of love and not just, and not just live for yourself. I think it's worth it because on that day, he will turn to those on his right and he'll say, well done, thank you. All right? So it's good to kind of begin with the end in mind, right? So today, if I could make a case for judgment is, one, all that negative stuff that we have in our culture about condemnation, about, you know, that's not the whole complete picture. Judgment day is justice day, and that's a good thing. Come on. Wouldn't it be awesome to be finally rid of hatred, of evil, of brutality, of oppression, of wickedness. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> it's, that stuff's getting old. Justice is a good thing. So, again, while we take communion together, maybe you could start thinking about your own epitaph. But, again, it boils down to you're going to live for you or you're going to live for him. And if you have not yet signed on to Team Jesus, this is an opportunity today for you to explore the possibility of, yes, here's what I know. On Judgment Day, on Justice Day, I guarantee there will not be a single person who stands up and says, man, I wish I had done more for me. I wish I had had more me time. I wish I had spent more on myself. I wish I had just, you know, no one's going to say that. No one's going to stand up and say, I wish I had done more vacation. I wish I had had a bigger house. I, you know what they're going to say? I wish I had loved more. I wish I had taken more risks for God's kingdom. I wish I had given more away. I wish I had loved recklessly. That's what people are going to say. Position yourself now for that. Position yourself now for that. I want to pray for you and pray for me. God, this idea, this concept of judgment is, is a difficult one. But it's one that the older I get, the more I long for it. There is so much in this world that is broken, that is wrong, that is messed up, that is whack. I long for the day when things will be made right when life will be lived the way it's supposed to be. So we, as a community of faith, say, even so, come Lord Jesus. 
We look forward to your return. We anticipate your return. And until that day comes, will you empower us by your Holy Spirit to live lives of love, to live lives that remind people of Jesus himself. We need your spirit to do that. And we want to please you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.